Well, we are starting this series off with a bang, and um, take out your Bibles, if you will, as we get to the scriptures, Genesis chapter 29, and then also if you have, uh, and you should have, this bulletin that was given to you on the way in, in the bulletin, there is a note page, and it looks like this, and we would love you to fill in the blanks with us, follow along, and um, take notes. Studies show that people in heaven are 40% happier if they took notes at church. So... Uh, we're doing The Greatest Showman, and the title of the message is The Greatest Showman and Distorted Pursuits. Next week, Jurassic Park. Yeah. Don't bring your children. They may get eaten. No. <laughs> um, this, the, the Greatest Showman and Distorted Pursuits. And I thought about this movie, and I think that this movie really does speak to uh, one of the realities of the human condition, and that is that there is always something that we have set up to be the thing. And that song that you just heard kind of sums up where I'm going with this message is that it's never really enough. You know, all the stars that we steal from the night sky, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, they're never enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world and it will. Never be enough. And that's the human condition. You see, the problem with us, and the Bible really opens up with this. This is how it starts. God makes everything perfect, and he gives us all that we could ever want. And he promises to be with us. And Adam and Eve are in perfect harmony with God and with creation. And then Genesis chapter 3, they listen to the serpent, and things go horribly wrong from there. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, we have been looking to get back to that harmony. We have been looking to get back to that peace that can only come from the God who made us and designed us to be with him. And the gospel is the story of God undoing what we did. And this is God's work toward us. But along the way and throughout human history, there is untold damage done to the human heart. There is untold uh, failure and misery because when we do not come to God for that which he offers and turn instead to his things and the creation and look to that for our hope, we come up empty. The Greatest Showman starts and ends with the same phrase. It's actually a very poetic film. It starts and ends with this phrase. It's all you'll ever want. It's all you'll ever need. And it's standing here with you. You're right where you want to be. It begins and ends with that phrase. And P.T. Barnum lives this out. He's looking for all that he's ever wanted and all that he's ever needed. And his story reminds me of the story of a woman from the first book in the Bible. A woman who is desperate for love. A woman who is desperate to be accepted a woman who came up empty in her false pursuits. And so many of you will be able to relate so well to her or P.T. Barnum's story because it speaks to that condition, it speaks to that need, it speaks to that want. Something has to meet that need. Something has to fulfill that want. And if it's not, God will come up empty. Her name is Leah. She's in Genesis chapter 29. And I want to read a short portion of her story, and then we're gonna back up and talk about how she got to where she is at this moment in 
the biblical narrative. So would you stand with me, if you will? Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, just five verses, and then we will back up and read before later on in the message. Here's what it says, Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. That's a Bible euphemism for saying he gave her babies. But Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again she conceived and bore a, th a third son. And she said, now, this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, the name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a fourth son and said, this time, I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Judah's name means praise. Then she ceased childbearing. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. And I pray, Father, that you will speak deeply into our lives. May we see Jesus and him only. In his holy name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. When the Lord saw, verse 31, Leah was hated. Oh, Leah would fit right in with this Me Too movement. A woman who was taken advantage of and wrongly used and abused for the pleasures of the men in her life. A woman who has a tragic story. The Bible actually says there's three things the world, sh the world shakes under. One of those things is a married woman who's not loved. That's Leah's story. Maybe it's some of your stories. What happened? Why is Leah unloved? The funny thing is, it was to none of her fault. In other words, she was the direct recipient of wrongful actions against her by the people who should have loved her. And it sets her up. It sets her up for false pursuits her entire life until she comes to the reality that all those things that she seeks after cannot be found in another person. I wonder if you're where Leah is in this text, in that place that puts one's hopes and dreams in the love, the affection, or the approval of another person or crowd of people. We kind of do this. We kind of look for acceptance from someone. When we're young, it's from friends. When we grow older and start to have careers, it turns into someone else. Like, as soon as I am loved, then I will be somebody. And do you know why we believe this? Do you know why we buy into this? Because we have been raised by Disney. They've been selling us this story for about a half a century. For ever since Snow White sang the words, someday my prince will come. Young people have been thinking that the answer to a hopeless life is to fall in love. And so the story goes. 
for every Cinderella, there's Prince Charming. For every Belle, there's a beast. For every Jasmine, there's an Aladdin. For every Pocahontas, there's a DNA test. I mean, there's a John Smith. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, scratch that, scratch that from the records. For every Mulan, there's a Shang. And on and on and on the story goes. Interestingly, two Hollywood celebrities just came out and went very public with the announcement that they don't let their daughters watch Disney films anymore. Could it be that they came up empty themselves and now they don't want their children to experience the same? The search for love. We are baptized into this from childhood and it gets in here. And we start to believe that we're nobody until somebody loves us. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. What I love about that passage is that God sees those nobody else does. And you might be in church today and that's your story. Male or female, you're that person. I'm not loved the way I think I should be. I'm surely the person that everybody has rejected and overlooked. I got good news for you. The gospel comes to the poor in spirit. And those that the world ignores, Jesus sees and Jesus brings back into fellowship with the Father who made them. This is why I do what I do. I love seeing people lost, connected back to him who finds us. And so Leah, looking for her husband's love. Again, she didn't do anything to deserve this. She, it's not her fault. Leah is the byproduct of bad decisions from people all around her, and there are many of you. That's your story. The things that you have, the things that have hurt you have actually been the consequences of other people before you. So I want to back up because Leah's story actually doesn't begin in Genesis chapter 29. It begins with twins in their mother's womb. The mother's name is Rebekah. The father's name is Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son of Abraham. Rebecca is pregnant with two boys, and they're jostling in her womb, and she doesn't know what's up, so she comes to God in prayer, and God says, there's two guys in there, there's two boys, actually, there's two nations, and I got news for you, Rebecca, the younger is gonna rule over the older. And so these two boys are born, and in the ancient world, you never chose the younger son over the older son. The older son got everything. Younger son got whatever the older son decided to have, but God doesn't work the way we work. He chooses the younger son. Over and over again, he chooses the younger son, the younger son, so that when Jesus shows up and all the older sons reject the younger son, it is the younger son through whom we find salvation, Jesus Christ. But back to Jacob. Jacob is that younger son wrestling with his older brother Esau in the womb. And they come out and Esau is first, and he's red all over and hairy like a garment, the Bible says. They name him Esau, which means red. And then Jacob comes out clutching his heel. They name him Jacob, which means heel grasper, supplanter, deceiver. And all his life, Jacob wants what Esau's got. And so Esau and Jacob, like many children, many twins or many siblings, become polar opposites of each other. Esau is loved by dad. He's a hunter. He's, he's a skillful swordsman, a skillful bozeman, if you will, and he brings dad choice meat, and, and, J and Isaac loves Esau, and Jacob turns into an inside boy. He likes to cook, he likes to clean, he likes to hang with mom, he's Rebecca's favorite. If Esau is Bear Grylls, 
Jacob is Bobby Flay. Well, one day Bear Grylls is out hunting and he comes up empty and Esau sees Jacob who's just made some nice red porridge and he says, give me some. And Jacob, always, being looking, for, always looking for the opportunity to supplant his brother, says, sell me your right as the firstborn son. And Esau doesn't think about it. He says, what good is my firstborn sonship if I, am, if I starve to death? And he sells it. He despises his birthright. Jacob grows up a little bit longer and Isaac gets old and becomes blind and their father is about to provide the priestly blessing to the oldest son and Esau is about to go get some meat out in the field and bring it to his father when Rebekah intervenes and on behalf of her favorite son, she connives a plan to deceive the old man and she dresses him up, Jacob, in Esau's clothes, puts garments of skin, clothing around him so he feels hairy like his brother, makes up the meat just like Isaac likes it, sends him in for the firstborn son's blessing. Jacob comes in, and Isaac doesn't use discernment, and though the voice is the voice of Jacob, it smells and feels like Esau. And he gives Jacob, the younger son, the blessing of the firstborn son, and he leaves, and as he's walking out, Esau is walking in, and Isaac begins to shake and shudder and says, who did I just bless? And Esau says, Jacob, isn't he rightly named deceiver? And then he says, the days of my father's death are soon upon us, and after my father, I'll kill my brother. Well, Rebecca hears this, and that will never do for her favorite son, so she dresses him up, packs a lunch, and sends him off to her brother, Laban, to avoid her son's wrath. He runs all the way across the Fertile Crescent, ends up at a well, and he asks around, do you guys know a guy named Laban? This is my mother's brother, and they say, yes, in fact, here comes his daughter, and this beautiful woman named Rachel comes to the well with her flocks, and Jacob is so struck by her beauty. The Bible says that there was a stone over the mouth of the well that would require several men to lift, but Jacob is so struck by her beauty, he literally lifts the rock off the well by himself and provides water for her flocks. Guys, that'll always oppress a woman. He asks about her father. Is it well with him? Yes, come and see. And he goes to Laban's house, and he's there about a month. And picking up the story, Laban says to Jacob in Genesis chapter 29, verse 15, he says, listen, just because you're my kingsman, should you work for me for nothing? And he says, tell me, therefore, what will your wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak, which is the Bible's way of saying she was ugly. But Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance. And the word form there is deliberate. It is, in the words of the great theologian Ed Sheeran, I'm in love with your body. <laughs> and Jacob responds. He loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you, how many? Seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban says, better I give her to you than someone else. Now just remember that that's not an agreement. So he worked seven years, verse 20, for Rachel. And they seemed but to him a few days because of the love he had for her. And all the ladies said, aww. And verse 21, Jacob, tired of working and not getting any. Says, give me my wife, for I want to go into her. Again, biblical euphemism for sex. My time is completed. So Laban says, all right, let's do this thing. He throws a party. He orders extra alcohol. The, dark, the, light, the sun goes down. It's dark. 
The daughter he thinks he's getting is veiled from head to toe and only her eyes are showing. And at night, as Jacob goes into the tent to consummate the marriage, Laban pulls the ultimate switcheroo. And he puts Leah in the tent instead of Rachel. And in what has to be the funniest passage in the book of Genesis, Jacob awakens on honeymoon morning. Verse 25, it reads, And in the morning, behold, it was Leah, the wrong woman, is in the tent with Jacob. Has anyone ever had a morning like that? Don't raise your hands, you sickos. Don't raise your hands. And Jacob says, what is this? Why have you deceived me? Did I not tell you that I'll work for you for Rachel? Listen to Laban's words. He responds and he says, it is not so done in our country. Listen, to give the younger what the older deserves. Jacob's chickens have come home to roost. <laughs> and so Laban, you have an idea that he had this mind all, all the time, the whole time, and he says, listen, I'll tell you what, work more seven more years, and you can have Rachel too. And the first episode of Sister Wives is born, right here, Genesis chapter 29. And now listen to me about Bible, the Bible and polygamy. Listen to me very carefully. The Bible mentions polygamy in the lives of many of God's great men. It is never an endorsement for polygamy. No, the Bible lets us see that when men take multiple wives, terrible things happen. Don't do it. And so here's how the story sums up before we get to Leah. Genesis 29, verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban another seven years. What does this have to do with the greatest showman? Leah is unloved not because of anything she did, but because of the rejection she experienced. How many of you have suffered the same thing? It's an amazing thing that happens to us when we're young and rejected, how we carry that rejection right into our adulthood, and we try and try to undo it. And we always fail. The story of P.T. Barnum begins, he's a young, poor son of a tailor. And his father has jobs in high society, and he goes to one of the mansions where a man is getting fitted by a tux, uh, for a tuxedo by P.T. Barnum's uh, father. And as he goes into the house, he sees a beautiful young girl who he falls hopelessly in love with at a very young age, and he tries to impress her, and it goes horrible. And then he comes back as a grown man, and he gets rejected again by her father. And it starts to scar him for the rest of the movie. And I want you to see it for yourself. Watch this clip. Pinky in the air. Arm extended. Elbow out. Keep your cup level. Gently lower your cup. Shall we do it again? Pinky in the air. Arm extended. Elbow out. Gracefully. Jared, he come here. Your dress. Is this how we've taught you to behave? It's my fault, sir. I made her laugh. Well, thank you for your honesty. Stay away from my daughter. Oh, 
sir. I, I know I don't come for much, but I will take care of your daughter and I will give her life as grand as this one. She'll be back. Sooner or later, she'll tire of your life, of having nothing, and she'll come running back home. There are things like that that happen to many of us, the rejection of a people that we want so desperately to be accepted by, and it forms in us a pursuit that's distorted by the pain of our past. That's point number one if you're taking notes, is the pain of our past can distort the pursuits of our present. I want to undo what was happened to me when I was young. I want to chase that thing that was robbed from me. And so we'll go off to try to get something we feel we deserve. You know what the Bible calls this? It calls it idolatry. And idolatry is really just taking what God makes and turning it into the ultimate thing in our life. In fact, that's the definition. I'd love you to write this down. An idol is when we take a good thing and we turn it into an ultimate thing. A marriage is a good thing. It can't be the ultimate thing. Some of you are young and single and you're thinking, as soon as I get married, I will feel whole. And you need to talk to some married people. <laughs> and some of you married people are thinking, as soon as we have children, we will feel whole. And you need to talk to Cheryl and I. And then some of you and Cheryl and I, we need to talk to people whose kids have already left the house because we're in that stage. Because it's not as good as you think it's going to be. It never is. That's the problem with an idol. An idol is a good thing, but it can never be an ultimate thing. In the ancient world, they bowed down to trees and stones and sticks. In the modern world, we bow down to the altar of marriage and friendships and the cheers and the applauds of crowds. And none of it, none of it fulfills us. Leah conceives, verse 32, and she bears a son and she calls his name Reuben. And here's her estimation of the event. The Lord has seen my affliction. He sees that I'm hated. And now, because of this son, my husband will love me. Notice what she does. She takes the good thing, the son, and turns it as a tool and an offering to the ultimate thing, her husband's acceptance. And it fails. It fails her more than once. And Leah's not the only idolater in the story. No, let's back up the story a little bit, back to Jacob's story. Remember, Jacob was the favored son of his mother. And when he has to run for his life from Esau, he runs to the other side of the desert, and he's totally alone. And mom's love and mom's protective guidance is no longer there. And so the moment he sees Rachel at a well, ironically, the same place that his father got his wife from, he falls hopelessly in love immediately. What is he? He's desperate. He promises Laban seven years of labor for Rachel's hand. Why is that important? Because in the ancient world, on average, the bride price was two years of labor or two years wages. He triples the amount and adds another year for good measure. That's called desperation. Do you know why you know you're struggling with an idol? Because you're desperate. And you overpromise, and you give yourself to these pursuits, and you give your life away for, for something that, that may actually end up disappointing you. And it might be because something happened to you, and you're chasing something that you never should have been chasing to satisfy a longing that can only be met in God. 
Point number two, if you're taking notes. Jacob and Leah, they experienced this. Distorted pursuits can never satisfy our deepest needs. Jacob comes up empty. He asks for Rachel, he gets Leah. Leah comes up empty again and again and again. She gives birth to Reuben. Maybe my husband will love me now. No. Verse 33, she gives birth to Simeon. The Lord has heard that I am hated. My husband doesn't love me. Maybe this time I will have his love. No. Verse 34, three sons in now. Now this time my husband will be attached to me. What is she looking for? She's looking for that elusive acceptance of a man. And son after son comes into her life, and time after time she's empty. That's how life sometimes works. That's how it works for P.T. Barnum. He chases that high society life that his wife's father said he could never have. And it becomes a distorted pursuit. And you know, sometimes this is what God does for us for our distorted pursuits. He actually gives them to us so that we'll see that they're not what they cracked up to be. And P.T. Barnum becomes a raving success, and he finds a young, beautiful singer named Jenny Lind, and he hires her from England to come over and entertain the very high society people he so longs to be accepted by. And she sings never enough, and she blows them away. Standing ovation, and P.T. Barnum is off the side of the stage, and he is reveling in what he finally feels is the acceptance he's always been lacking. And at the after party, his father-in-law comes to see him and congratulate him. And the sting of the rejection from years before is still with him, and he can't even be gracious to accept his congratulations. I want you to watch this clip. Allow me to introduce you. Uh, excuse me, Jenny. I'd like you to meet Charity's parents, Mr. Oh. and Mrs. Hallett. Oh, pleasure. How do you do? Very nice. Nice to meet you. Mother. Hello, dear. <clears throat> Are these? Yes, yes. Those are your granddaughters. Phineas, not here. Not here? You're afraid I'm going to embarrass your parents in front of their fancy friends? I, I really don't think I have that power. An insignificant man like me, who was clearly destined to lead an insignificant life. All that fortune and still just the tailor's boy. Get out. Phineas, I believe I told you that free champagne is a recipe for disaster. Charity. Now, would everyone please raise... Charity. ...their glasses. To Mr. Barnum, who has shown once and for all that a man's station is limited only by his imagination. Thank you. Thank you. It's hard to understand wealth and privilege when you're born into it. <laughs> I sometimes don't feel like I belong here. You? I was born out of wedlock, and that brought shame upon my family. And life always manages to remind me that I don't deserve a place in this world, and that leaves a hole that no ovation can ever fill. That's a powerful phrase. 
It's part of the human condition. There's a hole in our hearts that no ovation can fill, no matter how hard we try. Leah's problem, no love from a man in her life. And so she takes the young men who she should be forming into godly men and uses them as leverage for what she ultimately wants. There's a lot of parents that do the same thing today with their young people. They live vicariously through their children. They over-deliver for their children in hopes that their children will live the life that they felt they always deserved. I'm telling you, that's a recipe for disaster. You're chasing the other people in your life. You're chasing your neighbors. You're chasing the neighborhood. You're chasing the dream that you wish you had. And if you're not conscious of this, you'll fall for that distorted pursuit. How many people are chasing the almighty dollar because they were raised in poverty? hoping to undo the unfairness of their past. How many girls sexually assaulted and abused in their past are looking for vindication in the public condemnation of figures on the news? Ladies, do not use your past private turmoil and tragedy and look to public figures being condemned as some sort of atonement. You'll come up empty. If you want atonement, look at the cross of Jesus. The innocent suffered for you. The innocent suffered for the sins somebody else committed against you and you committed against others. The atonement of Jesus Christ at the cross sets you free from harboring the resentments of your past and helps you to live free indeed. How many men rejected by women their whole teenage lives? turn to pornography in their adulthood because it offers a cheap substitute for what they felt they deserved. If we're not careful, we'll let the pains of our past distort the pursuits of our present, and it does not work. Leah finally comes to a realization, this ain't gonna work. I could pop out a million boys for this guy, he's still gonna ignore me. And so she has one fourth and final son, and she makes a powerful decision. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 35, it's the key text in the whole story. And she gives birth to a fourth son. And she says, this time, and if you're taking notes, underline the words, this time. This time I will praise the Lord. In other words, I'm not going to look to my husband to give me what I know the Lord has offered me. This time I will turn this blessing into what it's meant to be. Praise to my father who cares for me and has his eyes on me and never ignores me. Some of you, that's the decision you need to make. I'm not up here saying don't get married. I'm not up here saying don't chase a good life for you and your family. I'm, I am here saying don't look to those things to undo the pain of your past or to make you feel worth something. God in heaven sent his son 2,000 years ago for you and his blood shed on that cross was God's statement that you are valuable to him. You are made his child by faith in Jesus. That's the atonement. That's the fulfillment. That's what he wants for you. Point number three, the answer to distorted pursuits is to find ourselves pursued by God. Is the great switch of theology. Most of us think we're searching for God. We're not. The Bible clearly says it in two Psalms, two different passages. It says no one seeks God. No one. If you tell people, I found Jesus, change your lingo. That's not how it works. Jesus was never lost. 
you were. And remember Genesis chapter 3 where it all goes hopelessly wrong? Well, God shows up right after, and Adam and Eve go running into the bushes to hide from God who they sinned against. And it is God, not them, who searches. This is the Bible's narrative. This is the story of our lives before him. He came after us. He's the hound of heaven who searches to seek and save those who were lost. And the ones he finds are the ones who finally realize that every other pursuit leaves them empty and there's one who pursued them the whole time and his name was Jesus. This time I will praise the Lord. Judah, and from Judah, we get Jesus. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, P.T. Barnum also experiences the emptiness of distorted pursuits because right before the end of the movie, he loses everything. Jenny Lynn wants to have an affair with him, and he rejects her, and she abandons him mid-tour. And he goes home to find that his circus building has been burned to the ground by rioters and dissenters. And he's left with nothing, and he goes to the tavern to wallow in his emptiness when he suddenly sees all of his people, all of his shows, all of his acts, they come to comfort him and they tell him, we're with you. And he sings a powerful song, it's called From Now On. And I just want to read the words of that song because they are so powerful. He says, for years and years I chased their cheers, the crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and see you here, I remember who all this was for. From now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. And then he makes one final move. He goes back to that father-in-law's house for a third time to get back his wife and his children. And this is what happens. I would like to see my wife. She's not here. She's at the beach! brought hardship on you and our family. You warned me, and I wouldn't listen. I just... I wanted to be more than I was. I never wanted anything but the man I fell in love with. Let this promise in me start like an anthem in my heart. However big, however small, from now on. powerful story and as usual Hollywood almost gets it right <laughs> because the end of the story is meant to convince you that if you find the one and you have some children you'll finally feel fulfilled 
But the reality is, and life teaches you this after a while, your marriage may not be all it was cracked up to be, and one of you eventually is going to pass away. And your children, as precious as they are, will one day move away. And if you put your hopes and your dreams into all that, you'll still feel empty. It's not to say that it's bad. It's just to say that it can't be everything. Well, Leah finds out that her husband's affection ain't coming, and her, and her sons, they aren't either going to be the fulfillment of all her needs. She praises the Lord. She makes a decision. And from that son, Judah, comes the great kings of Israel, David and Solomon and Josiah and Hezekiah, and then finally, Jesus Fast forward 1,500 years into church, into Bible history. John chapter 4, that son of Judah, that son of the unloved Leah, finds himself at a well named after Jacob. And he meets a woman himself. Only it's not a beautiful woman and it's not a pure woman. It's a woman who's been married and divorced five times. It's a Samaritan woman and he comes to the well and he's tired. And he needed to be there. He needed to be there. Why? Because she was there and she needed him. He's the great seeker. He says to her, give me a drink. And she says, what are you doing talking to me? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We don't do this. And he says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water. And she's intrigued and he has a conversation with her and he draws her in and he brings her into himself. He says, listen, I am who you need. She says, I know that when the Messiah comes, He'll tell us everything. He says, you're looking at him. I who speak with you am he. I'm all you ever wanted. I'm all you ever needed. And I'm standing here with you. This is where you want to be. You see, in Jesus, God offers us all the love we want and all the love we need so that we can pursue those dreams and then not be defined by their realities so that we can get married but know that if we're not as in love as we once were there's still a deeper love inside of us that comes from the father who is above so that we can have children but then ultimately we can do what we're supposed to do with them let them go and live their lives because we know that they're ultimately his children just as we are ourselves and i'm telling you the moment that you cross the line to stop searching after the idols of your life and find yourself rooted in the love of christ you'll see god fulfill your life in a way that nothing in this world can ever do and you can live free in jesus name by god showed his great love for us by sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. It's grace. You don't earn it. You don't achieve it. You receive it. Receive it today. Be filled in him and live.